This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Moving right along here, you know, when I opened my calendar this morning, I I saw an important item that I forgot to remove, and it was my annual MRI and mammogram to make sure that I'm still cancer-free. And it's been canceled for weeks, and I know tens of thousands of people are in the same boat with elective procedures on hold. Don't get me wrong. I don't think I should be anywhere near the top of the list for rescheduling when things open up. Getting these tests have no impact on my ability to go about my daily life, but that is the reality for a lot of patients. And I'm thinking about people who have joint replacements or cardiac ablation or even cancer surgery postponed. And if you are in that situation or have a loved one who is, please give me a shout. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we begin with Dr. Chaim Bell, who is the physician-in-chief at Sinai Health. Dr. Bell, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Libby. So, You did a study after SARS on the impact of everything that was postponed during that time. Yes, we did. Yes. And um, SARS is a a bit of a different um, issue compared to what we're going through now, obviously. SARS was not the same type of infection, uh, nor did it have the same cross-country or international um, exposure that we're, we're seeing right now. But uh, but it, it is something that we can learn a lot from, uh, particularly with the way that healthcare was shut down in different times. Okay, and and what happened after SARS, and and you know what are you going to extrapolate from that? So what happened after SARS? Just to recall, and and for those who, who um, weren't around at the time, to to uh, remind everybody that SARS was in two thousand and three, so seventeen years ago. Uh, it really was from the period somewhere around. March to most of it uh, dissipated, most of the, the measures, there was a second wave, but most of it dissipated somewhere around July, uh, the beginning of July, so right around Canada Day. So it was the end of March to around Canada Day. And uh, what we found during that time, in total, the, the amount of deaths that were attributable to SARS, SARS-related deaths, were relatively small compared to the deaths death rates that we're seeing right now. Um, largely, at the time, SARS was much more of a hospital-based infectious phenomenon, and it really wasn't as much of a community-based phenomenon. And that's the difference we're seeing uh, here with um, COVID-19, is it's much more of a community-based, and and we're now seeing um, the effects also in, um, in the long-term care, the nursing home, and the retirement home area. Uh, however... What we did, interestingly, there was a, a pretty large shutdown of healthcare, essentially in the in the Greater Toronto area, more so than in the entire province. And what we saw was that um, when we looked at it with some statistical modeling, and 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 again, this is the the you know how you how you do the analysis. 
what we found is that there wasn't really that much of a big difference in deaths during that period, during the actual period of the outbreak, which, again, was somewhere between March 27th and, and July 2nd. So approximately 14, 15 weeks during that time. We didn't see a large spike in deaths during that time when we compared it to the previous um, the, pre- the death during the previous time in 2001 and 2002. The challenges that you see, and just as you identified during your time, is not necessarily the acute deaths during that period. It's what happened, and we didn't we didn't assess this. And this is a very complicated thing to assess: is what happens when you, for example, the, when you opened up your um, the opened up the segment talking about mam- mammogram or re. Um, retesting or uh, certain surgeries, what happens in those situations, those aren't really looked at during that specific short term of the actual effect. It's what happens thereafter. What do the delays show? And, excuse me, as of now, people can get, you know, there's no problem with emergency care, or there shouldn't be. There's no problem with urgent care, so urgent cancer surgeries. The challenges are not necessarily at the hospital level. The challenges are often at the reluctance of the patients or individuals when they do need that care. So part of the issue is in showing from a statistical perspective, from a research perspective, what are the differences because some of those differences are blurred in the future because of, because of the effect, because of the closures, because of the effect on healthcare, what happens in the far future or distant future or even in the in the medium-term future. But I really have to emphasize the issue right now is that if people do need urgent care or emergent care, that's the issue that we that we have to we have to get over uh, people's reluctance to go to the hospital for those types of things because those present and the, and the issue that we want to make sure is that those present the biggest pressing issues. We, we, you know, nobody wants to see people with a heart attack suffer it out at home because of fear for going to the hospital for contracting COVID. That's uh, the, the the classic thing that we want to we want to make sure that people avoid. Right, but there are many people. I mean, and you know, I, I with cancer surgery, for instance, there's usually a range of time. There's a benchmark that says, okay, you have to get this done within however long it is, two months or whatever. So, you know, it is considered elective. But uh, I can tell you, even if you just follow on on social media and things, people are really upset when their cancer surgery is postponed. And having been through it. I mean, I can't even the, imagine the anxiety of having something like that postponed or joint surgery. People are in pain and unable to go about their daily lives while they have fairly lengthy waits anyway. So th- those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. I know that emergency procedures are going on. We actually have a colleague here who had uh, a, an emergency heart valve replacement and oh, wow. you know all went fine so we know that i'm i'm talking about those things with okay they're they're considered elective but they're you know not that elective right and and just to be clear you know there's the difference cancer care ontario as part of ontario health does have pandemic guidelines and um the guidelines that uh, on what happens with cancer care 
during those during those times. So they definitely have have put this out. This is just in Ontario, but most of the other provinces have similar types of guides guidance. The, the challenge, of course, as you've identified, is the the access to the operating rooms. And the reason we did that, the reason that the entire system has done that, is is not is is really in preparation, or, or we were we were being prepared for a potential surge. So as of now, thankfully, at least, you know, for the latest data, we're not seeing that right now. And what we have to see for both the surgical perspective, but also for most of the, most of the um, medical care in the province is, uh, is that what, what can we start doing more of? So as of now, depending on the types of cancer surgery, uh, according to um, to different uh, classification schemes, uh, with respect to urgency, that those are the those are the ones that are prioritized. But just as you point out, uh, it doesn't help somebody with their anxiety with waiting for cancer surgery. And in some of those situations, particularly in gastrointestinal or breast cancers, what they what we've done, what people are doing is moving it from having the surgery beforehand and chemotherapy afterwards to switching that so that more people might be doing chemotherapy before in what's called a neoadjuvant setting and and uh and then ha- and then with an aim towards having the surgery afterwards so those types of things are being looked at because our access to those surgical resources is decreased with respect to heart uh, cardiac care as well. Similar, similarly, we'd have um, similar access to more elective procedures, in-hospital procedures, um, and as well as uh, outpatient procedures as well. And and the intent is is twofold. One is to protect people. The the second was really in preparation for this surge, making sure that we have the maximal. You know, we had thought, and and it wasn't. It, it it's not an unreasonable. Uh, it wasn't an unreasonable. Uh, no, no one said it was uh, unreasonable. Yeah, it wasn't unreasonable. An unreasonable. But now, what we have to do, it wasn't. Un, it wasn't unreasonable anticipation, especially when we look at something like New York. You know, they're not really looking at that at all right now. Uh, similarly, in Italy and such, we're in a fortunate situation that we can start looking at this. And we are starting to look at this. We are starting to look at this in a in in a way where we want to do it in a measured um, way, and we we're trying to do it not just on an individual hospital perspective, but we want to do it in a system perspective, where different the, the hospitals are learning from each other at the same time when we're moving in lockstep. And that's what's been that really has been um, the approach that has been arrived at throughout this throughout the pandemic thus far is through good communication and through trust and collaboration that even in Toronto, there have been many of the, um, many of those hospital tables. And it's really a testament to the cooperation of our, of the leadership of those hospitals and the, and the leadership um, within the Ontario health and within the ministry and coordinating that along with public health. So the, the, the issue is that it's not, you know, we want to make sure that anybody that needs emergency care is, is there the other area, and, and sorry, look, I just want to emphasize one other point, is that we have gone very quickly gone to an unprecedented amount of virtual care. And, the, you know, it's, 
it's it's certainly something that it's not always ideal for every situation, but in many other situations it can be. So that's that's the other element. It's that's the difference between the SARS situation and now is our ability to access virtual care. Okay, Dr. Chaim Bell, thank you so much for that. Thank you very much. Really Bye-bye. appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. We have a number of specialists that I'm about to bring in, but I'd like to start with Linda in Scarborough. And Linda, hi, Linda. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. So what procedures have you had postponed? Well, I was booked actually for a total hip last October, and I developed cardiac issues, PVCs, many PVCs in a day. So my heart was, my hip was bumped at that point. I had a Holter monitor and echocardiogram was done with a specialist at Sunnybrook who thinks I probably need an ablation at some time this year coming. I did go for a second uh, echo and Holter Marjo a couple of weeks ago at Sunnybrook, and they were fabulous. The professionality of the staff and the, the sterile um, conditions were, were fabulous. So I had that done, so I'm waiting for the results of that. But my hip was then booked again for May of this year, and then it was cancelled again because of COVID. So, um, yes, it is disappointing, but I think there's a lot more patients who are more um, critical than my cases, so I think the doctors usually, I think, would prioritize the cases and put them first. And the only thing I could say, Libby, is keep a stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on, and that's all we can actually do right now. That's, that's a great attitude. Are you in pain because of your hip or the things you can't do? You know what, Libby? Um, I've always been very active, like cross-country skiing and things, so I'm in pretty good shape. So my husband actually last fall bought me a couple of um, walking poles. So we go out every day for a 40-50 minute walk. Um, we take our time, but um, when I get home, it's a little sore. Um, but I have a fairly high pain tone, so I feel sorry for people who don't have that. And I'm sure it must be awful for them because some people have very bad pain. So I'm very fortunate that way. Um, and that's just my story. I think if people, and the doctors, I really think the surgeons will prioritize the cases. Oh, I'm sure. Um, do more x-rays to make sure that the, the hip or, or knee joint hasn't, deteriorated more than when they saw them last time because everyone has to think will have to be reprioritized. But anyway, that's the only thing I wanted to say is just I want to keep a stiff upper lip, keep on going. And like to Winston Churchill said, when you're going through hell, you just keep on going. Okay, Linda, thanks for that. You have a great attitude. Yeah, you too, Libby. Thanks for your thanks for your show. Okay. Uh, and we'll take one more call before we get to the doctors, Doug and Lindsay. Hi, Doug. How are you? Hi, Libby. In pain. You're in pain? What, what's your situation? Well, my, uh, I was getting injections last fall of steroid injections in my lower back, and I was scheduled to have more, uh, start another series back in March, but they canceled that. And actually, the uh, doctor that did it phoned me this morning to see how I was doing. I thought maybe he was going to invite me over to have another shot, but uh, no, he can't do anything for the time being. And uh, I'm also waiting for a hip replacement. I'm on Tylenol 3 for that, which makes it more or less bearable. But I don't know when that'll ever happen. And and are you able to go about your normal activities, or does it uh, interfere? Well, it slows me down quite a bit. Okay. But, uh, no, I'm still living in the house, and I'm here by myself. And uh, even my cleaning lady's not working from home. Okay. Um, that's a tough situation. Uh, I feel for you and uh, hope that everything gets rescheduled soon enough. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that this is causing a lot of pain for a lot of people. D- Doug, thanks so much for sharing yep. your story. Okay. Thank you. Okay. 
Uh, so it's uh, time to bring in uh, uh, doctors we have. So we've got Dr. Anish Karpalani, who is a staff radiologist, actually the head of abdominal radiology at St. Mike's, and he's also the board chair of Pancreatic Cancer Canada. Dr. Harry Rakowski, who's a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and chair of the Peter Monk Cardiac Center Innovation Committee, and Dr. Sean Bevan, who is the chief science officer with the Arthritis Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi there. Hi, Libby. Good Hi. to be here. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Hi. Great. Um, why don't we start with Dr. Rakowski? Um Doctor, what's the impact of people having things like ablations postponed? Libby, there's two parts to it. So it was obviously was reasonable to reduce the volume of procedures that might impact on the need for beds and for ICU care. So as COVID cases increased and ICUs started to fill up, that was shut down so that we're only doing emergency stuff. And now we're on the cusp of reopening it. And, you know, this has had an economic toll and a healthcare toll. So care delayed is, is care at risk. And as your, as your listeners have said, so the good news is that this is going to start to come back probably in the next week or two, again, with prioritization and very careful thought as to what you do. What is happening is twofold. So one is there is a reduction in care. If we look at heart attacks, where people who have heart attacks are usually smart enough to come to the hospital. But there's been a reduction of perhaps 20 to 80 percent, depending on where you are, of people presenting for emergency care for heart attacks. And so that's inappropriate. It's not just the reduction of care. It's the fear that people have that if they have something that otherwise they would have thought was urgent, they're afraid to come to the hospital because they're afraid of catching COVID, which they're very unlikely to do. So the two things are one. Be patient. That care will come back in a stage in an effective way. Two, if you're sick, come to the hospital. It's still very unlikely that you're going to catch the infection there. Okay, let's bring in uh, Dr. Karpalani. Um, hi, Anish. How are you? I'm great, Libby. Nice to talk to you again. How are you? Nice to talk to you again. Uh, uh, Anish and I were uh, colleagues on Pancreatic Cancer Canada. Now, you're a radiologist. These diagnostic tests are, are necessary for cancer patients. Uh, and I would imagine, you know, you can't do surgery before you have all the imaging. So what is the impact of, of the postponements uh, in your work? Um, thanks, uh, Libby, for bringing up this uh, topic. I just want to um, amplify some of these messages. Uh, I mean, you're right. Uh, the impact is potentially huge. Um, you know, we, there are. You know, we don't have a good solution right now to, you know, the the postponement and potential backlogs and capacity issues that may, we may see down the road uh, in people who have serious medical conditions like cancer, um, like heart disease, uh, and like uh, many of the other conditions, even that um, uh, people on the call earlier, Linda and Doug, were talking about. Um, the, really, the only solution that we have is uh, the same point that's just been brought up, which is uh, don't wait uh, now. You know, we, um, you know, and we and, and colleagues across the board at hospitals and, and, uh, and community facilities, you know, and imaging uh, are open uh, to do uh, urgent uh, imaging tests. Cancer uh, patients with cancer who need imaging are being scanned. 
they're having CT scans and MR scans and ultrasounds and uh, and nuclear medicine tests and all kinds of other uh, imaging tests that, as you say, are needed to guide further treatment. Um, and we are we are doing imaging to support uh, urgent clinics, uh, urgent surgeries that need to happen. Um, but as you heard earlier, um, you know, in many cases, uh, you know, the issue is that people uh, are scared uh, and they don't want to come into a hospital for fear of catching COVID. Um, they don't uh, want to go to medical facilities um, or emergency rooms across the board, across the city, and, and, and I'm sure across the country have seen a dip in uh, the number of people coming in who need who, who need attention. Uh, and those people uh, who are coming in um, are coming in sicker um, because uh, they're waiting longer, uh, they're afraid. And um, we're seeing even that when we are offering uh, imaging services to people, uh, for those who need it, and we are, uh, I've been very active in reprioritizing, um, listen, thousands of patients. We've, we've uh, you know, prioritized and reprioritized uh, their imaging scans, for example, in my field. Um, and even uh, when we have appointments available for them, because we know, uh, you know, some of these tests are very important and they can't wait, uh, people are afraid to come in. They don't want to come in. Uh, and I think that uh, I completely understand uh, that sentiment. Um, but we have to urge people that, uh, listen, if you have cancer, uh, if you have heart disease, if you have something that can't wait and shouldn't wait, um, that uh, you need to see your doctor. Uh, if you need to come into the ER, uh, you need to come into the ER. Uh, if you need to have imaging to support uh, and to guide uh, what's going to happen next for you, then um, don't wait. And uh, we should continue to do that. And we have um, all of these facilities, community clinics, um, uh, independent health facilities, hospital departments have processes and policies set up to keep people safe. Uh, yeah, but still, I keep hearing from cancer patients who are very upset if their surgeries are delayed. I mean, even if they are deemed that they can wait a bit. Yeah, it, it's a problem, and I I empathize for you know the the people who um, who's. Uh, you know, the, those reprioritizations have resulted in, uh, in, in cases and, and, and surgeries being postponed. Um, and I, you know, I, I just think that problem, uh, I'm worried that that problem may get even worse, uh, as we, um, you know, as the longer this goes. And, uh, if people who at least are in the situation where we're, um, you know, we have prioritized certain cases, um, you know, if those people uh, are, are, are worried about coming in and afraid to come in, uh, these situations are just going to compound. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's bring in Dr. Bevan. Hi. Hi there. How are we doing, Lee? Fine. How are you? Good. Thank you. Uh, so joint replacements, uh, you're with the Arthritis Society. Uh, joint replacements, people already have to wait a long time. Often they are really impeded in their daily life before a joint replacement that they are they might be waiting six months for or longer. Uh, what's the effect of having people, you know, wait even longer? Yeah, that, that, it's a great question. Um, you know, we know that, and we've already heard from the other callers and, and from our guests, that the delays that we see right now, they were put in place for good reasons, but they certainly will have an impact on many different patients across the country. And so, you know, for people who are looking to have these joint replacements, um, to your point, we know that many of these surgeries aren't happening within the medically recommended wait times. Um, 
And you know, right now we know that about 20% of those surgeries across the country for hip and knee replacements aren't happening within that six-month window in the first place. And of course, there are huge regional and geographic disparities within that. And you know, we heard from the first two callers about the real impact that that has on people's quality of life, pain, limited mobility, limited function, things like that. Uh, I guess the one thing that I would want to um, stress is that, you know, while it's a very challenging situation for patients to be in where people have to wait even longer for these surgeries, there are things that people can be doing at home, you know, to help maintain their joints, do their best to maintain their mobility. Um, the number of tools and resources at arthritis.ca in Ontario, we're fortunate to have the physiotherapy program that the Arthritis Society runs. So, you know, during this uneasy time, there are things that people can think about as they're waiting for these joint replacement surgeries. Let's take a call from Kevin in Sunderland. Hi, Kevin. Hello. What's your situation? I'm calling on behalf of my uh, wife. She's got to have gallbladder surgery, and uh, this has been going on since Christmas Eve. And she got diagnosed January the 8th that she needed her gallbladder removed. And it, it took a bit to get an appointment with the surgeon. But uh, we had a date for April the 14th, and that got got canceled. That on April the 1st, the doctor phoned and said your uh, surgery uh, is being canceled. But meanwhile, in the time in between, she's been uh, in terrible. Uh, this gallbladder pain goes around the side, up the back, and she had bad high blood pressure and that, and, and that's been going on since Christmas, like every day. And and she's got no. Uh, like, it's not very good life. She's in terrible pain every day. And every time we go, we've been to Emerge like five times and they do tests. Oh, yeah, your blood work's going. Go on home. It just never gets, it just never gets anywhere. I, that's terrible. I, I hear you. And um, I had my gallbladder removed a long time ago and that pain is terrible. Uh, that's terrible. So all they can do, I mean, is probably give her painkillers. All they're doing is see uh, our family doctor just gives her here his here's Tylenol three, you know, like she's been on Tylenol three for, for the last five months. That's terrible. Uh, have they given you any the, kind uh, of? Like, well, it was back in the end of February before uh, her appointment got canceled. Have they given and you? She got, uh, had another gallbladder attack, and I called nine one one. And the ambulance come. They took her. They took her to the Eskridge uh, College Hospital. They did tests on her. And this is when all this COVID was going on, like I couldn't go in. And then about five hours there, they phoned up and said, yeah, you can come get her. Uh, we're discharging her. And I thought, I thought, sure, they would have had to take it out. But no, they just, so I had to go down, pick her up, bring her home. She was still the same way, in pain. And same as today, she got this morning. Oh, I feel terrible. She went back to bed. And she's in bed now again. Like, every day is the same thing, pain. Um, I don't, I have that's terrible to hear. And, uh, you know, the uh, doctors we're talking to, I'll check in with them. They're obviously not in your area, uh, that some things will be starting up again. But but I, I hope that she gets the surgery she needs soon. Uh, you know, I hate to hear that. And, and, you know, my best to both of you, Kevin. Thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, yeah I hope that they call sometime soon because she's... If she has another attack, it'll probably burst, and then she'll be in worse trouble than she ever is. Okay, uh, let's hope not. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Anish, a situation like that, how is it decided? When does it become urgent? 
in a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's it's a very difficult situation that Kevin describes, um, uh, and uh, this is the terrible, you know, downstream, as you were saying, effect of, um, you know, the tough decisions that, uh, you know, our, our governments and and, um, and uh, decision makers uh, have to make with regards to closures and, um, and uh, social distancing and cancellations. Um, you know, what I really worry about is, uh, is in a situation that Kevin, uh, like what Kevin describes, uh, is, you know, uh, they're going to present, um, eventually, uh, and they're going to be sicker and they may have to come, you know, an elective surgery, um, you know, may end up becoming, uh, something more uh, urgent or emergent. And, um, and, uh, that, that just becomes uh, more complicated with, uh, with, um, uh, you know, potentially, uh, adverse or potentially bad outcomes. How does it, you know, how do we decide? Um, it's very difficult. I, I mean, uh, there are guidelines as uh, one of your earlier callers, uh, called about from, you know, from agencies like the CCO, Cancer Care Ontario. Um, and there are, um, uh, there are also kind of, uh, you know, uh, requests that come in, you know, in cases, uh, like Kevin's where you, you heard, it doesn't fall into, you know, the issue of cancer, it doesn't fall into the issue of, of, uh, of heart disease where there are, uh, you know, potentially big advocacy groups. But, uh, we are taking, for example, we've made, um, uh, um, pathways for, uh, primary care physicians who deem, uh, patients urgent, uh, to have their, um, uh, you know, imaging, um, uh, fast tracked or moved into a, you know, into a priority list if there, uh, if there are, um, uh, direct requests like that. Um, we're also, uh, prioritizing patients with acute symptoms. Um, so, uh, but there's a, hu- you know, there's a huge list of, of medical problems that uh, we have to sort through and, um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult work. And, um, there are going to be, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, situations where, um, our system as the way, it, uh, the way it is now with, uh, a lot of closures and decreases, uh, in appointments, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, that are going to, where, where, where people are not going to be able to, uh, to come in. Uh, it's very unfortunate. Dr. Rakowski, uh, do you see a situation where people's conditions might deteriorate? So, Libby, we're very concerned about this. <clears throat> Anecdotally, we know that there are people who have died of heart attacks because they didn't come in, people who have died uh, because of surgery that couldn't be done that was not urgent to the point that it was necessary in the next week or two, but semi-urgent and delayed. And we are uh, likely going to fund a study looking um, across Toronto as to the effects of care that was delayed. So what happened in terms of people coming in with more severe problems and therefore putting them at greater risk of the intervention but the challenge right now is getting it started again. So there are a lot of us who are pushing and saying, okay, we plateaued or on the descending limb of the curve. Let's get on with it. Let's get ambulatory care back because that doesn't have a big impact on beds and on procedures. And let's get started back on those people that we triaged as being semi-urgent. Nothing terrible is going to happen probably in the next 14 days. But it could, if you continue to delay their care, let's get them in. 
The challenge for hospitals, so we push on one end, hospitals push back because there's a lot of moving parts. It's not just saying, let's open the cath lab or let's do an ablation. It's how do you get people safely in the door and screen them? How do you have the support workers that some of them may have been redirected? How do you have anesthesiologists who are struggling with an increased burden of ICU care to get them into the operating room to give anesthetics to patients who need simpler uh, care you know, other than you know being really sick in an ICU. So there's a certain delay that is necessary until you get those moving parts in place. But the good news is that we really are on the cusp of doing it, and there is a triage system. So uh, for your caller whose wife needs gallbladder surgery, hopefully that's something that would come back earlier because in many instances, it can be done as a day procedure. So you're in the hospital in the morning, you go home, if all goes well, and have it done laparoscopically, you can go home uh, later that uh, day. And those are the kinds of operations that probably will come back sooner uh, because they're easier to do and they don't consume uh, beds and ICU beds uh, to the same degree. But yes, the delays in care will have an impact. We don't know what that impact is other than the anecdotal evidence of certain bad outcomes. We'll measure it. But until we get the system back going, hopefully in the next week or two, uh, we're sort of stuck with this situation. Uh, The other thing you've talked about is how do patients deal with the anxiety and fear that something terrible is going to happen to you. We'll, we'll have to do that on another yeah. occasion because uh, okay. we are out of time. Um, Kevin, if you're still listening, call your family doctor again and, and see about whether that is opening up. And it is a topic that we are going to have to take up again. But right now, thank you so much, Dr. Harry Rakowski, Dr. Sean Bevan, and Dr. Anish Karpalani. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for being Okay, and that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday coming up tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.